Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. Asheville is a very unique town. I meet a lot of unique people. My guest today is comedian and friend Nick Taylor. Nick is one of the nicest, most complicated friends I've ever had. He suffers a lot, but our time together is always well spent. Nick is intense, but extremely good-natured about it. He's sensitive, funny, perceptive, and wise. This episode is incredible. It's dark, it's deep, it's honest, and it's long. So long, in fact, that we've divided it into two parts. I hope you'll take the time to listen to them both. I believe with all my heart they are worth your while. This is the moment where I thank you for listening and encourage you to make a donation on our donation page. It's also where I mention our Amazon portal, a link you can use to help support the podcast financially without spending any of your own money. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to bore you with how helpful it is to rate us on iTunes or why nothing is more important for a podcast than positive iTunes reviews. I'm not even going to ask you to keep telling your friends about Learning to Fail because we want this all to be a secret. All I'm going to say is Learning to Fail is a lot of fun for me and I'm going to keep talking whether you're listening or not. And now it's time for part one of my epic conversation with Nick Taylor. This thing gets heavy right away but has fun and funny moments throughout. I love Nick. I think you will too. I also think you'll benefit from Nick's candor. I feel like I should warn you that this may not be an easy episode to listen to, but if you see it all the way through, I think it'll impact you deeply. I hope so. I'm incredibly grateful to Nick for being so open to this kind of conversation. He's one of a kind, as you're about to find out. All I'm going to say is... Thank you, Jason. I'm excited to be here. Are you excited to be yeah. here? You got a big ass smile on your yes, face. Yes, I do. I don't know if you can pick that up in my voice, though. In my voice, I might sound like I just smoked pot or something. Anybody who knows you can hear the joy in your voice right okay. now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, even though it's like a slight difference compared to some people who'll be like down here and all the way up here, you know, mm-hmm. with you, it's subtle, but it's, it's, I, I can always hear when you're smiling. Mm-hmm. And, and I can hear when you're not, which is an alarming amount of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, he's smiling, as opposed to, oh, he's upset. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's yeah. like, yeah, yeah. That's. Yeah. I mean, that is part of knowing you is is being intimate with that dynamic. Mm-hmm. So that's tough, man. I mean, it's hard to. It's it's hard as your friend, and I really do consider you a friend. I mean, we've become, in my opinion, really good friends in a pretty short time. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I'm getting the feeling that's just my opinion, but no, it's not. It's a shared uh, opinion. <laughs> it's a shared opinion. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But it's hard. I mean, I watch you go through a lot of um, torture. Is that, yeah. Does no, that feel accurate? It's accurate. Yeah. And uh, right now, in the, and in the past several days, I'm very like uh, level and. Um, sort of in enjoyment with everything. I can have a bad day at work and be in an enjoyment with that. Enjoy that. That must feel good. Yeah, but there's going to come a day and a cup, you know, a few days later from now or a week or so later from now, there's going to be no logical reason why I'm going to feel miserable, but I'm just going to feel miserable for a while, <laughs> you know? So it's weird how right now I could eat barbecue and general so's chicken you know and right. like not exercise but 10 days from now i can exercise and eat the healthiest food and still feel extremely depressed you know the only That's, thing i take issue with in that statement is the idea that general so's chicken is unhealthy well it's healthy for the the emotional aspects right it's a comfort food hmm. but it's it's probably not yeah I'm sorry, man. You're not healthy. You know? <laughs> not healthy. You don't eat healthy. No. Uh, well, I don't know that you can make that determination about me. The only place we eat out together is the place that serves General Tso's chicken, and you're the one who orders it more often than I do. But the, uh, the only place that you eat is Sobas. Is that true? That's true. <laughs> and everything else is settling. You settle for Thai when you go to Greenville to do comedy or to Johnson City, or to Knoxville, or anywhere else you go around the country when you travel. It's settling. 
you settle. <laughs> I hope that the owners of Soba hear you say that. Yeah, Bobby, yeah. Bobby the manager. Bobby the yeah. manager, yeah. Is your, yeah, He's your VIP. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is my favorite restaurant in Weaverville. Mm -hmm. um, That's not saying a lot. For there are also restaurant. other restaurants that I enjoy. Yeah. But I do eat there an inordinate amount of the time. Uh, but but back to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about that feeling. I mean, like, it's. Do you have a sense of of the cycle? Like, is it week? Is it every three weeks? I mean, do you know? Do you... Yeah, it's give or take. You know, it 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 um it it ebbs and flows on. You know, sometimes it's not always two weeks on, two weeks off, or two weeks of depression and two weeks of of happiness. Um, but I have tell signs that let me know I'm getting that I'm, I'm, I've reached the top or I've reached the bottom. Oh, really? What are yeah. the signs that you've reached the top? Well, they're both the same. It's to reach the top and to reach the bottom. When I reach the top, I know I've climaxed in my cycle. I've peaked. I know that sounds <laughs> like an innuendo. <laughs> I've, I've <laughs> so when I reach the top, I have a creative spurt. And I feel the creative spurt is, oh, is um, accompanied by just feelings of wellness in all in all regards just wellness in in physical health wellness emotionally positivity about the future like optimism all around and just feeling really open and vulnerable and comfortable in that vulnerability so that's the top once i hit that and there's creativity i'm like okay i'm gonna it's all downhill from here wow. you know and it slowly goes downhill until I get around somber, just somber, not not negative thoughts, not anxiety, just somber, just uh, subdued. And once I get to subdued, then it like it's a race to the bottom. And from subdued comes negative thinking, right? So I go from subdued and just sort of calm and not positive just right. sort of flat, not positive, not negative. I'm in that subdued zone. And then it's not long until I start thinking negatively without even noticing that I'm slanted in my thinking. I think that I'm thinking the truth, that I'm thinking factually. Hmm. But I don't realize that there's a slant that I have that I don't have when I'm feeling at the top, you know? Do you have a different slant when you're at the top? Yeah, it's positivity, it's optimism. But is it accurate? Is it more accurate? They're both accurate because they're my world. My world shifts is what I'm trying to say. If, if my reality, if all I know is my world, it's all based on my perception. Everything that I do, talking to you, going to comedy, you know, going to work, all these things, they're all my truths. It's my reality. It comes from my perception. I live in my own matrix. And what I realize, and I think that's true for everybody. That's, you know, a principle, right? What I realize is that my reality goes from very happy and optimistic to very, very negative and anxious and fear and full of fear. And they're very polar from each other. So it's like going from living in North Korea to living in Hawaii in a couple of weeks. Societies are totally polar, you know? I travel. You, you travel a lot. Two weeks here, two weeks there. I mean, here's the... So, okay, so... I mean, here's the thing I want to address in there. Yes, it's your reality, mm -hmm. you know? And your perception of your reality is going to impact your life. But your perception, and this is true for anyone, your perception of your reality isn't this necessarily accurate in terms of reality. So just because you perceive something a certain way, whether you perceive it with a positive slant or a negative slant, it may still be a misperception. And that misperception may inform your choices and you may create some very real realities as a result. But that doesn't make your perception 
of a situation or another person's feelings or whatever, that doesn't make it accurate necessarily. It could be. It's not always wrong. But if it's through that filter you're describing, I hear it as being askew, at least potentially askew either way. Does that make sense? It does. And I think you're talking from the position of someone who is a psychology professional. So where you're coming from, in my opinion, is like, I see where you're coming from, but it's skewed. Now, that is from the point of somebody who has a very fair perception. You are unscathed from the emotions that come up for me. You know, you're seeing it just as though you're just looking at data. You right, know? right, right, right. But understand that perception and reality are one and the same. It's my reality. It's my truth. Like in the Matrix, when Neo's questioning if it's real, he said, your mind makes it real. Morpheus said, your mind makes it real. Right. That's right on. My mind makes it real. Whether or not you relate to it, or you can come in contact with it is invalid to me mm. because it's real to me. So that feels really, when I hear you, like my heart hurts. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that sounds really isolating. It is. Yeah. It is. Because I think it's, I think it's fair what you're saying. It's just not true to me. It's, you know, yeah. Well, that you it's mean, skewed. That, that my, my views are skewed. Because... Well, I want to, okay, I just want to be clear. I'm not judging your views. Like, I'm mm -hmm. not saying you're, you know, a bad person for having them, or I'm not even trying to say that you're wrong. I'm, I'm trying to look at this thing. I, I can't help but project on you when you describe, you know, your, I want to call it your struggles with depression, but I don't want to make you feel that it's a struggle if that's not the word you would use for it. But your roommate... <laughs> You live with depression, right? I mean, is that a fair statement? I felt like you've told yeah. me that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but my, what about my roommate? Your roommate being depression. Oh, because I saying, have a roommate. I'm not, yeah, I'm not talking about your actual roommate. Oh. I'm trying to use the word roommate instead of struggle. Like, you have this being that lives with you, which is depression, you know? And sometimes it's... Well, we're a couple. You're a couple. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, as couples do when they're truly in love with each other, they associate as a couple. They identify as a couple it's not oh i love that movie it's we love that movie or i love it but she hates it you know or i love it but they hate it so i can separate every every now and then but really i'm married with depression i'm married to depression so roommate's not a strong enough word roommate's not there's okay. truly a relationship happening between us that you can't get out of right I'm stuck. Yeah, till death do us it's part. It's a Victorian I mean, it, era marriage. It, yeah. <laughs> Was it an arranged marriage? Yeah. 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 It probably does feel like an arranged marriage. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I doubt you chose it. Right. I didn't choose it. My parents were like, we're going to set you up with depression. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally their genetics gave me depression. You know? What about their parenting? Yeah. Their parenting sort of influenced our relationship. You know, my relationship with depression. With depression. Yeah. 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 It's funny to look back and see all the things that my mother did that was consistent in my family of six. I'm one of six kids. And uh, looking at the way my mom raised us, with very few exceptions, she raised us almost identically. Hmm. And all five of my siblings, I would say, are very positive-minded, happy, well-integrated kids who've now grown up to be adults. But me, I mean, I'm still, I'm, I'm still, I still have no idea where I'm at. You know, like I'm in vertigo to this day and I've always been in vertigo. And I think that, um, that goes to show how much of a specialist was needed in my upbringing. And wasn't there. And wasn't there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Just cause like you're bringing attention to, you know, the things that are skewed, right? Well, there wasn't that in my childhood. There was, oh, just, you know, just go outside and play. And what that led to was me resenting and basically telling myself I was lying when I felt certain ways. 
I was telling myself, you know, you're lying, grow up, I hate you. And then I would try and exercise and run it off. But that would just feel more bad feelings and worse of a self-image, you know? So your family really did not understand where you were. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do they now? Much more. Much more. Well, my, when, my, when I say my family, I mean my mom and one of my siblings. What just, about your, what about your dad? Um, he's just not very involved with my mental health, you know? I remember after we uh, performed together in Hendersonville, you know, you showed your video of your comedy to your dad. Like, you wanted it just specifically for that. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? It was very generic. I didn't, I didn't ever feel like, of all the things I've ever shown him, they've all been the same reaction to the point which I can't tell if he's being serious or he's being father, like he's being like accepting, mm. tolerant. You know, like, for instance, if I saw a kid's art in my, if, you know, a five-year-old's piece of art, not judging it as a five-year-old's piece of art, but just seeing it as an attempt to art, I would look at it and say that failed miserably. You know, like that's, that's shit. But when I take in, then it's this five-year-old and that that's where they're coming from. And that those are the, they've used their resources to put, to put that piece of work to life. Then I realized that, that it, it takes on a whole new life form. You know, that, that piece of art isn't just doodlings that look crappy, you know, but it's actually, it's vivid. It's, uh, it's, that it has a lot of character. It has a lot of life in it. So I'm making that analogy, that cross-reference, because I'm curious if when I show this to my father, he's seeing it through the lens that this is my son. This is not somebody, you know, who's, whose work is in a gallery, right. but this is my son who's doing this. So I never can gauge whether he's appreciating me solely because I'm his son or because it is something that engages him. Because if it were some random 20-something-year-old who has a father, but, it's, but he's not their father, he might not care at all, you know? Right. So comedically, you're a five-year-old in this scenario, and you're showing your kind of your first painting, you know, to my father, to your father. Yeah, and you can't tell you. It sounds like you want him to. Res- How do you want him to respond? Do you want him to respond lovingly as your dad? Do you want him to respond positively as a critic? Or ideally, of course, it would be nice if it was both. But what what's the itch for you that wants to be scratched? I want him to be honest. So I don't necessarily care for him to critique it, like with thought. But if he doesn't laugh, I want to know that he didn't laugh. Hmm. I want him to just react as he would as though it was some random 20-something-year-old. And then what about, I mean, does he support your pursuit of comedy? He supports my pursuit of anything. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of rare. It is, is that, very rare. Does he support rare. your pursuit of anything because you never pursue things? Or does he per- support your pursuit of anything because he's genuinely supportive of his child pursuing anything he wants to pursue? He's, that's, his, that's his mindset. He's genuinely supportive of people pursuing anything. Well, that's, I mean, that alone. I mean, in an isolated way, that sounds pretty fantastic. Yeah. That's why it's really hard to pinpoint where I am lacking from him. Because he's so providing and so giving in so many ways. And he was there for me, uh, not in the fullest way, but at least in some semblance of a way when literally nobody else was. Hmm. You know? Not my siblings, not my mother, not any friends or peers, no one in school, no counselors. I didn't even have a therapist. I, I had nobody but my father. For a while, for a couple of years in high school. What did that look like? What kind of support was he able to provide? It was very isolated. I couldn't get support from him and then apply it to the rest of my relationships. You know, he didn't give me advice, 
which is the problem. He didn't teach me to fish. Mm. He fished for me. But he was the only person in every dynamic relationship I ever had, or static, whether static or dynamic, he was the only person for a time, for a, a span of several years who fished with me at all. I literally was alone for so long, surrounded by classmates, teachers, five siblings, a mother, a mother's best friend, dogs, and nobody to relate to, nobody to connect with. Wow. Yeah. And it all starts with, I'm feeling this way, and other people saying, no, you're not. Or you're feeling that way because you're not doing anything. And then kids at school being like, well, that's because you're a faggot, you know? And teachers being like, I don't care that you're feeling that way. You need to do your work. I mean, as a father, that's devastating to listen to. Mm -hmm. I constantly feel like I'm failing my daughter. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm a pretty good dad. Mm -hmm. But I, I am aware of how I'm failing her constantly. Mm -hmm. Or she feels failed, even if she's not, you know. Yeah. Or she expresses the feeling that I'm failing her as a father, whether or not that's an accurate perception. I mean, sometimes it's I'm failing her as a father because I won't give her ice cream, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. at 10 o'clock at night, you know, at this point she gets it, but there was a time when she didn't, mm -hmm. she just thought I was being mean. And sometimes she'll say, you know, you're mean, you know, you, I'm like, why am I mean? Cause you don't let me have candy. I'm like, I want you to keep your teeth. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> and her, you know, my like, priority is your, I've got a long-term list of priorities for you and they include health. Yeah. And, uh, you have a short-term list of priorities that include sugar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> drugs. <laughs> well, not yet. Well, but, those are, those know. are drugs in my opinion. Oh sugar. yeah. Sugar's a drug, but yeah. I'm just, but also as a parent, when I hear the word drugs and think about my daughter, I'm like, oh God, one day I'm going to have to be dealing with that reality too. Yeah. I mean, if she's anything like me, she'll try things. Hopefully, yeah. if she's anything like me, she won't lose herself to them. Yeah. That's, of course, my bigger hope. Yeah, totally. When I was in Colorado recently, I was uh, I performed at a cannabis lounge. Mm -hmm. And there were a number of people in there. Well, first of all, everyone in there who wasn't there just to see me and, a couple, and the, the other comedians, the people who were regulars there. Mm-hmm. They were stoned beyond anything I've ever seen before. Like, they were just catatonically high. Yeah. And when I was telling jokes, they liked my jokes, but it took them a noticeable time lag to laugh. You know, it was several seconds before the joke came out of my mouth and hit their ears and went from the... And that actually didn't take very long, but the ear to the brain, that took a while. Mm-hmm. And they were just so fucking high. It was crazy. And this one woman, one of the women there was particularly beautiful. She's from the West Indies. and It's awful that I am including her physical beauty in this piece of the story. Yeah. And I recognize that. Yeah. But I just, I just, I looked at her and I was like, you know, she's somebody's daughter, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a, I mean, it's possible there's no father or even mother in her life but probably she's somebody's daughter and she's sitting in this cannabis lounge so outrageously stoned mm -hmm. and her boyfriend looks like he's a career stoner mm -hmm. and just as a father i was just like i don't know what i would do with myself if this was my kid mm -hmm. i would know that i failed as a father if this was my child, mm -hmm. or I would feel that I failed as a father if this was my child. Yeah, I have a joke you've heard me tell. You know about my daughter. She wants to. Get this it's all based on real conversations. Yeah. You know, she yeah. wants to wear heels and change her name to Midnight. Yeah, like can't do it. Yeah. you know, you're too young for me to have failed as your father. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's how that feels. So, when I hear you talk about your sense of isolation in mm -hmm. high school, in particular, I mean, I thought I felt isolated in high school. And I did, mm -hmm. but from your description, it paled in comparison to what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Although I will say that at that time, and I'm 20 years older than you, so you know there were even fewer resources back then, just because the 
global consciousness just didn't have that yet. Yeah. There's just more awareness now. There was even more awareness 10 years ago when you were in high school. Apparently not in your high school, but... Yeah. <laughs> but that's, overall... That's, that's the anger for me. That's where I still feel anger is there was awareness throughout the United States. There have been peer-reviewed journals that touch on things that, that are still being explored in spirituality. There's been an infiltration of spirituality into wellness, which permeates into psychology and psychological wellness. But in my school, for the bubble that I lived in of a really bad high school and a really sheltered home life, and then the friends that I had who weren't rich at all, like who, who were lower middle class, you know, who were in many ways like casual renegades, you know, like egging houses and smoking cigarettes all night long and just drinking 40s and not really doing anything, not going to see a concert or going to the movies or going to a political event, just kids who are just wasting their time. That was my life. And as aware as the world has been in t since 2004, when I was a freshman, I didn't get to touch any of it. I didn't get a hold on any of it. But there were peers of mine who I never met around the world who were studying in school, in charter schools that traveled from country to country, that their curriculum was, was accredited, but they didn't have to go through seven periods a day plus a lunch of just people not caring at all. Not only not caring at all, but sort of fueling a culture in that school of just beating on the kids that tried, you know? There was a culture in that school. And I, I was the sacrifice, a nihilistic culture. So that's still what gets me is in your time or pre your time, there wasn't that knowledge or that knowledge hadn't spread globally. Right. But in 2004, the knowledge was there, but it was ignored by everybody. You know? Around you. Yeah, around yeah, me. Yeah. It was ignored. Even to, my, even to my mom telling me when I was 14 years old, after I told her, I want to be a filmmaker. And I had had that thought for a long time but I finally expressed it sometime when I was 14. And she said in a worried tone, you're living in a dream world. You can't just decide you wanna be a filmmaker. You won't know what you wanna do until after you go to college. It's too early to make that decision. So I had this duality going on ever since she said that of I'm gonna be a filmmaker and it's too early. I'm not, I can't trust that inner voice within me. Yeah. Because I haven't been through X, Y, and Z of the world yet. It's cognitive dissonance is what that was. And so I've lived with cognitive dissonance in embracing, in owning and sharing with people the mental experiences that I go through. Like when I share it with you and for you to say that it's skewed, right? That's fair. I have no, I don't care. Like I'm not offended or anything, right? But when you say that, if I interpret what you're saying as truth and I say, yeah, I am skewed in that way, there's dissonance. There's me embracing on one side, this is real. And then over here now, I'm saying, well, it's skewed. If I embrace both, I'm not, I, I, there's no trusting happening. There's no, listen to your voice happening it's there's that takes me away from my heart and puts me up in my mind which often happens when i have anxiety when there's dissonance i come up to my mind and i engage as a lawyer between the two sides and then from there i create so many arguments that i just have a huge cluster of what ifs and most of them turn out to be negative. When I was in the peak of my spiritual inquiry, and inquiry is even too uh, dismissive of a word, I was deep in a spiritual practice for about seven years, maybe longer, but for sure seven years as a hardcore. And my teacher described the structure of the universe as being 
made up of simultaneously existing, conflicting realities. And from there, a couple things. One was, you know, wisdom comes in aligning with the reality that best serves the moment, but also that a more enlightened state is being able to accommodate both realities simultaneously, even though they conflict. So maybe I'll take out the word enlightened because it's so loaded, but a more integrated state is being able to make space for both realities simultaneously. And when I hear you describe what you just described, you said, you know, I end up in my head and I, I vacate my heart and there's, you know, just an argument going on in my head, like between two lawyers. What I hear is the disintegration. And to me, the disintegration is the difference between mental health and lack of mental health. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. I want to follow by saying I don't, I don't know how to integrate both realities in my heart. There's a singular voice that I live with every day. And it's really, the, for me, it's my source. And it's very impulsive, very in the moment. It's, it's very reactive. And it seems like it's always tangential. Like if my voice were to be a famous person, my voice would be Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd. You know, very creative. Sometimes even seemingly genius in creativity but with so much of a, a downside, very sporadic and unable to really hone in on finishing projects. My voice will have me on my phone looking up current events because I'm curious about something and then to be inspired to uh, learn this new blues lick on guitar then I'll mentally think that I have, you know, I have these errands to run and my voice will just propel me to finish those errands very well, very thoroughly and very quickly. But in terms of projects like developing a new 10 minutes of comedy or producing a new film, in that regard, it doesn't have sustenance. My voice doesn't carry sustenance to see them through, but has vast amounts of creativity to plant seeds, you know? That's what I do well without even trying is to plant seeds. But there's not even mental health in that voice. Right. I can't even say it's immature, like a child who doesn't finish projects because they're distracted. I don't even think it's immaturity. It's really for what's true to my voice, what's true to it is not to stay invested after the interest fades. I don't know if there's a way to discipline it. Right. Like you when you were a child, I don't mm. think it needs discipline. Mm -hmm. It needs love. Mm. And I know you didn't mean the word discipline in terms of spanking. Right. You meant discipline in terms of order. Yeah. And, uh, and but like working out. Like, I know. Right. Yeah. But just remember when you were a kid, mm -hmm. just, I want to, I, I would like you to hear what you learned from your environment and just expressed in this moment. When you, as a child and a teenager, possibly still as an adult, when you were failing to function, everyone around you said, just do your work. Mm-hmm. And now you've um, identified this part of your own psychophysiology that's struggling to function. And your response is just do your work. It needs discipline. Mm -hmm. That's what I heard anyway. Like, yeah. you know, and I think that, you know, the things we learn, it's so subtle and strange, you know, it's like I'm always hoping. Sula will learn the things that I teach her, but she learns the things that I do, that she sees me do. Mm -hmm. Last year, near the end of second grade, she called the most popular boy in school a fucking piece of crap. Mm -hmm. 
because he'd been teasing her and inappropriately mm -hmm. all year. And, you know, the principal, the, not the principal, but the, her teacher called us and said this happened. And I asked Sula why she did it. And she didn't really give me an answer. So she's getting quiet lunch tomorrow, whatever the punishment was. And at first her mom was like, oh my God, I'm so, I don't even know where she learned that word. And I was like, I have some ideas where she may have learned that word. <laughs> and, you know, I wrote, because this, a lot of this happened by email. I said, you know, I would like you to sit down with both of them. Because my daughter is unlikely, unprovoked, to say something like that to someone. Mm -hmm. She's so shy. She, you know, she doesn't talk to people unless she's comfortable with them. Mm -hmm. So the odds of her going up to the most popular boy in school and telling him to fuck himself, she's not from New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, um, is, it's just not likely it, that it would happen unprovoked. Mm -hmm. And I made that clear that I had that concern. Mm -hmm. And I just remember even her mom was like, well, I know this boy and I know his mom and he's very charming and he's very, even her mom was inadvertently defending this boy. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of that swimmer who was Ryan Lochte. Who, yeah. who? No, no, no. The kid who got a six month sentence oh, for raping. Girls yeah. Stanford college. swimmer. Yeah. 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 And, and, too many people saying, oh, he, but he's an athlete and he's this and he's that. He's got all these good qualities. And he doesn't deserve to be punished or maybe he didn't mean it or it was probably just a momentary lapse of reason. Pink Floyd. Um, and uh, his dad said, come on, he's just got 20 minutes of action. Yeah, well, his dad's like, he shouldn't be punished for the rest of his life for, for 20, 20 minutes, minutes of, action. of action. Yeah. And, you know, in isolation, I can understand that argument. Yeah. But... What he did in that 20 minutes is reprehensible enough. There's something else there. Yeah. I've been very drunk on several occasions in my life, and I have never raped anybody, mm -hmm. you know, or even fucking close, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, there's just, there's something else that's wrong that there's a piece of him that feels that's okay, and his parents were sticking up for it. Anyway, my point around that was, was you know, even with this boy who remains extremely popular, He's arguably the most popular kid in her school. Mm -hmm. And there was some level of assumption that, you know, what could he have done to deserve that? Mm -hmm. By, I feel everyone but me. Mm -hmm. I didn't go there at all. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he did something to deserve it because I know my child. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, when I asked her... I said, she was with her mom when this whole thing happened, and, and they had some good conversations about her. Her mom's a very, very good mother. Her mom? So, My daughter's mom. Yeah. Is Sula's a very mom. good mother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I learn a lot of valuable parenting skills from her mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And then there are other times I don't agree with her choices, but she's mm -hmm. a good mom. I mean, she's really off the charts in a positive way. I asked Sula, where did you learn to do that? And mm -hmm. she's like, from you. She said, you talk to people like that all the time when you're driving. You know, you're mm -hmm. always like, idiot, and calling people names. Mm -hmm. And I said, where did you learn the word fucking? And she said, well, I knew the word fuck, and I knew the word freaking. Mm -hmm. So I just put them together. <laughs> <laughs> Badass. <laughs> totally. I was like, I think we're done. <laughs> I think you're cool. Now. You know, like... Yeah. Right now, I think more highly of you than ever. Yeah. And I said, well, I want you to know that I'm proud of you for sticking up for yourself. And I think you did the right thing. I don't know if you did it in the best way. Mm -hmm. And you just need to know that using that kind of language in school is going to be frowned upon. So you're going to get in trouble when you do it. Mm -hmm. However, I think you were in a situation where you weren't getting the support that you needed. No teachers were recognizing that this kid had been harassing you to the point that you were this upset. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, tell a teacher to do this. I'm like, you know, I don't totally agree with that. No. I think you have to handle your own battles with people head on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not always going to be pretty. And you may end up in a disciplinary situation for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm even okay with that. 
Like, mm. I'm okay with Sula ending up in a disciplinary situation for sticking up for herself. Yeah. She's not someone who goes around picking on other kids, making them feel bad. Yeah. That would be different. Mm-hmm. But for sticking up for herself against a bully and a boy mm-hmm. in a world where boy bullies are leading the world, leading the world right now. Yeah. You know, I'm totally good with it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I only went into all that to describe how my daughter learned from my actions, not from my instructions. Mm-hmm. And when I heard you describing your relationship with pieces of yourself that you're not happy with, I heard you demonstrating how you'd learned from the actions of the people around you and their instructions that happened to coincide, you know, Mm -hmm. they told you just do your work. They told you just go outside, go for a run. If I did what you did, if I did what Sula did in school, right? Right. And call someone a fucking piece of crap and then get disciplined. I wouldn't hear the end of it with my mom. She would yell at me until the point I was scared of her and say, you can't do that. You're in trouble. See, now you're in trouble. There'd be this big thing about getting in trouble and about acting out. And she would have yelled at me into oblivion very intensely too. She's a very intense woman for how little she is. She's like 105 pounds. She's extremely intense. And it would have scared me and it would have shocked me because she has done that to me before for when I got in trouble and for when I stuck up for myself. So what did I do? For the rest of high school, I never stuck up for myself again. So it's really nice to hear that you were proud of Sula. Maybe not proud of her word choice, but like proud and some pride in her word choice. I was a little proud of her there word is. choice. But like like yeah. maybe a little embarrassed or something no, that she I said just, fucking. No, not, no. None of the things I should feel did I feel. See, that's that's meeting someone where they're at. Instead of you're eight, you can't say that word. You know? Right. And that that's how it was for me. You know, it's it's sort of not worth it for me to base where that comes from in my mom. It's just not worth it. I could go on about how I think it's based on her Christianity and like her faith and not cursing and not taking the low road or whatever, whatever her thoughts and beliefs are. But at the end of the day, it had this profoundly negative effect on me. Right. I had, a, I used to go to this uh, very unique kind of physical therapist and he didn't want to hear how you got into the pain that you got into. He does not care. Mm-hmm. He said, it doesn't matter. I'm going to treat you the same way anyhow. If this is the issue, I'm going to fix the issue. I don't care if it's from a car accident or lifting a brick or tying your shoe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a difference because your body's in acute pain and I can, and it's in acute pain and there's long-term pain and he's really able to work with the systems of the body in a way that it, the origins of the issue don't matter. Mm-hmm. And that similarly, it doesn't matter why your mom is the way she is. Yeah. The only thing that matters is the impact it has on you and more acutely, the negative impact it has on you. Yeah. And that to me, um, I'm glad to hear that like, you're not trying to figure it out and justify it for her. Well, she had this, that, you know, you're like, maybe it's your Christianity. Maybe you're like, I don't give a shit. All I know is it sucks for me, Mm -hmm. which I think is the right response personally. Yeah. I also think, there's value, there's a separate process that would fall under the category of empathy, where mm-hmm. in an uncharged moment, you spend some time trying to figure out how your mom became the person she is so you can have some empathy around her and some forgiveness around her and everything else. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's parallel mm-hmm. to this other thing. Just because you can feel that doesn't make it okay for her to make you feel shitty for sticking up for yourself. Yeah. And it's very easy as kids to take on our parents' karma, actually. Yeah. In order to survive our environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I caught that happening with Sula one day recently where she did a bunch of things in a row that just infuriated me. We're trying to leave in the morning. And mornings can be stressful with a kid because they're just never ready on time and no amount of pushing and cajoling or anything, you know, or planning. It just doesn't do it. They're ready when they're ready. Mm -hmm. Some days we're late. Mm -hmm. 
And this particular morning, she was being particularly obstinate about too many things. Mm-hmm. And it started the night before because she refused to go to bed. And you know, it, it's like it's all connected. And that's because she insisted on having dessert. I mean, it's like I can trace it back and be like, this is how this happened. <laughs> Kids are just like, no, it's your fault. We're late. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up yelling at her that morning, which mm-hmm. happens sometimes, although it's less and less. But I was really, really angry. And I was still angry in the car. Mm-hmm. And I was just saying, you know, Sula, you just can't do that. And she's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I was like, no. And you can't just say, I'm sorry. I don't want you to be sorry. I want us to understand what happened that got us to this point. Because you just being like, I'm sorry, is just you trying to make us both feel better in this moment. But I'm not interested in this moment. I'm interested in the longevity of our relationship and us not finding ourselves in more of these moments. Mm-hmm. And even though she's eight, I was able to get some of that through to her. Mm-hmm. But that piece where she was like, okay, you know, okay, don't, you can't do that. Okay. It's like, that's her just curling up in the fetal position emotionally. Yeah. Just tolerating you. And just feeling helpless. Yeah. You know, and I don't want her to feel helpless. And I don't want her to continue the behavior that's contributing to the struggles that we're having. And as her parent, everything that I don't like about our relationship is my fault. And I know that. And I have to know that. And Mm -hmm. as a parent, if you pretend it's any other way, you're lying to yourself and your children. Mm -hmm. Like, it's your responsibility to make sure things go the way you want them to go or don't go the way you don't want them to go. Mm -hmm. And that's a very hard thing as a parent to acknowledge that everything you don't like about your relationship with your child is your fault. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway. uh, I just want to bring up that um, while, as we've been talking about what it was like for me as a 14 year old through 18 year old and the lack of support, the lack of connection and bringing this up and then you talking about Sula for me, when I hear you talk about Sula, I get like, like that made me feel so good and so angry at the same time because I didn't have that. And I'm so ticked off that my parents shit the bed on me. Right. That was so important for a, a child to recognize their self-worth. I can't speak enough about how I could do all the self-help in the world right now and see my self-worth on a day-to-day basis, but then relapse into my childhood trauma and believe I'm horrible. And that's ultimately what's been going on with the local comedy community is noticing, oh, I killed in this room and that room and all these places. And I got cited in the street by somebody I never met who said, I like your comedy. And that happened over and over again for a while. That can all happen, and I can go on a long streak of positivity and positive self-image. As soon as I relapse into, I'm a piece of shit, and I do not deserve any love from peers or from parents, you know, I'm stuck there for a long time. And from there, the floodgates are open, and douchebags can come in and say, I'm better than you at comedy and other things. And hey, Nick, the trust fund kid, and it's done. I'm shattered all over again. So why do you end up in that place where you're shattered? The question is, what triggers me going from adult lessons I've learned or adult um, experiences I've had? In my, and I mean strictly adult. I mean strictly from the age of 21 onward, mm-hmm. where I've seen my self-worth. What triggers going from that with, without even minutes, but in, in moments, in short moments, going back to the self-worth of my childhood. And I don't just mean as a young child, like eight or nine years old, but I mean adolescence, most importantly, junior high and adolescence, and post-adolescence, you know, college, when I went for a year to Quinnipiac and then a year to New York Film Academy before going to treatment. I don't know. I'd like to figure that out. I guess there's something to do with nostalgia. You know, we talked about 
the other day at the Soba, we talked about how important Pink Floyd is to me. Right. And how it's really the most tender moments of my life because I was intimately connecting with my father. Because we were simultaneously experiencing music that moved us. So we were talking about how me listening to Pink Floyd to this day conjures the same positive emotional experience as it did when I was 12. Well, I think there's a parallel. I think there's some sort of connection with that to my self-esteem that uh, I can be in my body and think positively for so long, for so many months, even if I have depression in between those months, I can still maintain positive self-image through depression and know I'm going to get through this. This is an episode and it's going to go away soon. And then after months of positivity, just relapse into disbelief of positive image and total belief and embracement of negative self-worth, of thinking I'm shit and believing it and it being a real truth for me. I don't know what triggers that. It could be the weather. It could be not being vigilant with certain things. I don't know what those things are. Maybe they're diet and wellness. Maybe they're using, like using sugar or tobacco or whatever. I don't know. I'd like to figure that out because I don't want to live my life and live it out completely to the point where people remember me for what could have been, what I could have done. That's the saddest thing in the world to me. That's it for part one. Who's ready for part two? Don't worry. We're going to let this one sink in for a little while before we release it. The good news is that a time will come when you can follow us deeper down the rabbit hole that is Nick Taylor. It'll be worth it. I promise. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about Learning to Fail, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep failing over and over and over and over and over. Learning to Fail is a production of Jason Shoulder and Marquee Comedy. Original music was created by Adam Fields, who also produces and edits each episode. Lindsay Fields handles all publicity and marketing. If you'd like to communicate with Jason, Adam, or Lindsay, please email us at learningtofailpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our blog and past episodes on ltfpod.com. To become a guest on our show or to request an interview with Jason, please send us an email or you can message us on Facebook. You can also find Learning to Fail on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as SoundCloud, Clamorit, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thank you for your continued support.